Judges chapter 3. Let's just start off verses 1 and 2. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Verse 1 begins by telling us of the nations that the Lord left behind. And these Canaanite nations were left behind by the Lord because, first of all, Israel was not faithful in driving them out. You see, it's interesting to say, if you were asked, well, why is it that these certain nations were left behind? You would say it was a combination of Israel's choice and God's sovereign plan, because both of them were true. We just saw in the first two chapters of the book of Judges that these particular nations were not driven out of the land because Israel chose to allow them to remain. They weren't thorough in their work of trusting God and casting out the nations that God had told them to conquer. But on the other hand, God would incorporate this into his divine sovereign plan all along and all along the way. And verse 1 tells us why, if you saw those words, that he might test Israel by them. You see, it was completely within the power of God to eliminate those pagan nations without any help from Israel. And in those initial years when the people of Israel came from the wilderness into the promised land, God did just some, I don't know, he just did some radical, scary kind of miracles to cast out the Canaanites in certain times in certain places. There were times where God sent swarms of bees or, or hailstones to fight on behalf of Israel. And that's pretty impressive when the Lord's doing that kind of stuff on your behalf, is it not? And so God did things like that. And you say, well, why just didn't God do that all the time? If God could do those things and cast out the Canaanites, why did he not do it? Again, verse 1 tells us that he might test them. God allowed those troublesome peoples to remain for a reason. And that word test there is used in the same sense as the idea of proving something. Those nations would remain because God wanted to prove, number one, the faithfulness of Israel to himself. And secondly, you could say he wanted to do it to improve their reliance on him. Listen, do you you sometimes get frustrated that God doesn't just kind of instantly change every area of your life? I mean, look, he could do it, right? Couldn't God do it that way? Sanctification by one awesome prayer. I mean, just the ultimate prayer. Or I'll tell you how preachers think. Preachers are the worst when it comes to this. They think that one really good sermon is going to fix everything, right? Man, if I just preach the most awesome sermon... And just, boy, the people will hear it and they'll get it. And bam, everything will be changed. You know, it just doesn't work like that, right? But God has a purpose in not having it work that way. You see, God wants our relationship with him to be both proved and improved so that we'll live a life of true partnership with God. I'll tell you one thing, with those Canaanite nations around them, Israel was tested in this sense that they had the opportunity to trust God in a way that they hadn't trusted him all along without those those dangers there. There's an additional reason given in verse 2. Did you notice it? Verse 2 also says that it was so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. 
That's a second reason why God allowed the Canaanites to remain when Israel did not drive them out. God wanted his people to be warriors. And the presence of those dangerous neighbors would make it necessary for those generations that came afterwards to know war. And friends, I'm here to tell you, this is a big deal. You may not want to be a fighter. God wants you to be a fighter. You may not want to be a warrior. God wants you to be a warrior. Well, I'm not talking about the enlist in the military service, although looking at some of us, it would probably do some of us some good. But no, I'm talking about a mentality that says life is a battle. Life is a war. And we need to fight it. You know, there's far too many Christians who, who live without any kind of fighting or warrior mentality. It, it's just totally bred out of them, so to speak. They, they don't think in terms of, listen, this is a spiritual war. This is something that we're going to struggle with. And I'm not going to despise the struggle. I'm not going to complain about it all the time. I'm going to fight it. And this is one of the great reasons why God did not unilaterally cast out the Canaanites when the children of Israel failed in their responsibility to follow through and do it themselves. God said, no, there can be a good purpose in allowing those Canaanites to remain because it can teach those future generations to know war. Now, listen, just by the geography of Israel, Israel lived in a hostile region. They were a small kingdom or nation surrounded by several other small nations and kingdoms that at times became very ambitious and they had to battle against them. But there weren't only the other small nations around them like the Edomites and the Moabites and the other ones around them, but there were also large empires from time to time, right? The Egyptians were just to the south and then later on the Babylonians and the Syrians and the the, the Persians and all the rest. They lived in one of these crossroads of the continents were huge empires. Listen, Israel would only last if they were to be a warrior people. Same is true with us in the in the spiritual struggles that we face. Listen, nobody likes the struggle against sin. But I'll tell you something, the battle is good for you. I, I know I'm looking out on some faces here this evening, and even though I may not know your particular circumstance, I, I would just know you're battling. And it's easy to despise the battle when you're in the midst of it. To, to just kind of get annoyed and angry with it and just wish it was all away, that it was all different. But listen, you have to come to the place where you realize and you sort of embrace it in your soul. And I'm just speaking of my own life and my own situation here to you, where you realize it and you just say, listen, Lord, for whatever reason, I need this. I, I don't want to admit it. I, I, I act like I only need, you know, candy and feather beds from you. But, you know, I I need some crosses from you, Lord. I need some trials. And even though I would have never chosen this for myself, there's something in the midst of this battle that I need and I will embrace. Spurgeon said it well, lots of other people have too, that the symbol of Christianity, it's a cross. It's not a feather bed. I have a nice lazy boy recliner, you know, hanging around your neck, you know. Well, that's my religion. Yes, right there. (laughs) My religion. It's, you know, little picture of a remote control or something like that. There it is. Hanging around your neck. 
You know, one guy wears a cross, you wear this. It's like, well, yes, this is comfort and ease. That's what I worship. What about you? Well, you wear a cross, you have a cross, right? But, and I don't mean this, this is going to sound more harsh than I mean it to sound, but isn't there something that we sort of despise the cross as well, right? No, instead we, okay, Lord, you want me to learn war. I'll learn it, Lord. I, I won't despise it. Now, verse 3 Namely, and now he's going to list the pagan nations around them, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. You see, God named each of the pagan peoples that stubbornly stayed in the land. And after the same pattern, I wonder if God could sort of make a list of our life, right? The sort of the stubborn sins that remain sort of, and you know, I'm speaking symbolically here. I'm speaking, you know, by spiritual analogy. But if he could make a list of the Canaanite tribes that live in our lives, right? These things, well, here you are. You got this and you got this and here's the tribes that God named them for Israel. Such a list in our lives might be sort of helpful in the way that it would help us to identify the enemies that we deal with. But don't miss what he says there in verse 4, that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey. Again, it's stated that this is the reason why God didn't just unilaterally, automatically eliminate these Canaanite tribes, even though it was within his power to do so. It was to prove Israel's commitment to God and his word. And if they were obedient to the word of God, the the other nations would not hinder them, and they would eventually grow strong enough to drive them out completely. Sadly, that really isn't the story of the book of Judges. The the story of the book of Judges really takes place, if you want to say, starting at verse 5, where we start with the first judge. And the rest of our time here this evening, we're going to consider three judges. And isn't that wonderful? Three judges in one night. Other nights, we're not even going to get through one whole judge, you know. But tonight, three judges in one night. Are you ready for this? The first judge, Othniel, verse 6. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Other preachers, not myself, they make jokes about the mosquito bites and the <laughs> uptights and out. Okay, forget all that. That's bad preacher jokes. And they took, uh, notice here though, they took their daughters to be their wives and they gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. You see, a huge part of Israel's compromise and accommodation to the nations around them was wrapped up in their intermarriage with the pagan nations in their midst. Now, I need to be very careful about this because nobody should misunderstand this. This was not a racist thing. It wasn't racist in the sense that they said, well, we're Israelites and you're Perizzites, just for example. And, you know, you Perizzites are so inferior. You you can't have anything to do with marrying an Israelite. Oh, no, we're the pure race and you're not. No, it wasn't that at all. This was a religious and a spiritual thing altogether. In other words, that Perizzite 
they could come and convert to the God of Israel. They could become Jewish. It wasn't ethnic. If they wanted to come and be a part of the family of Israel, the community of Israel, they wanted to be part, so to speak, of that mixed multitude, they could come. No, this was not a thing of race. It was not a thing even of ethnicity, but it was a thing of vibrant spiritual faith. And God said, your intermarriage with these pagan peoples around you, it's going to be your ruin and it's going to bring them down. But look at what the text says. It says right there in verse six that they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And what was the result? You saw it right there in verse seven. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Their ungodly romances led them to the worship of the pagan deities, Baal and Ashtoreth. I'll say it again. Their ungodly romances led them to the worship of idols and led their heart away from the living God. You know, if only there was a point of application here somewhere for modern world. I I wish we could find it. (laughs) I wish we could somehow reach out and and find a place where where people grapple with this danger of of, of marrying people who don't have a spiritual commitment and and where it causes a lot of trouble with their life. Have you ever heard this happening for people? Well, of course, of course, I'm I'm being stupidly sarcastic, am I not? What a huge danger this is for the people of God. Listen, I I understand how it sounds and feels to some people. You're saying, are you trying to say that just because this person doesn't share my beliefs about Jesus, that they're not a good person, that they wouldn't make a good husband or or, or wife, or, or they couldn't be a good parent to children? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying here's the critical difference. Listen, to be a follower of Jesus Christ says that on some level you say he's the most important thing in my life. Do do you really think you can be equally matched with somebody who has a different most important thing in their life? I mean, this is just simply it. I tell you, this is a huge thing for us to understand because who you marry matters spiritually. And I'll go even deeper with this. If who you marry matters spiritually, then obviously who you romance matters spiritually, right? Because I don't know, maybe somewhere around here there's some forced marriages or arranged marriages going on. But pretty much in our culture, the path to marry is through romance, right? But but there are a lot of people who pursue romance Please don't take this too harsh. I'm I'm just trying to speak to you as a pastor who cares about you. There are a lot of people who pursue romance mainly for the sake of entertainment. Rather than than being a pathway to the fulfillment of marriage. Listen, if if you pursue romance with people who don't have your spiritual commitment to Jesus Christ. You may very well find yourself falling in love with them. And then it's really hard to set things right, isn't it? Do do you realize that it is possible, it's entirely possible, for you to fall in love with a person that you have no business falling in love with? It's entirely possible. Well, 
You have to turn to the Lord and rely on his wisdom and rely on his grace for these things. Jesus told us that following him would require that we give up the things that we love most sometimes. And oftentimes an ungodly romance falls into that exact category. Now, I'm not speaking to somebody here who who might be married to someone who doesn't share their spiritual commitment to Jesus Christ, and they think, well, you know, if Jesus told me to give it up, then I should divorce my present husband or wife. No, Paul, the Apostle Paul, with the wisdom of God, dealt with that very specifically. And he said, if you're married to someone who isn't a a follower of Jesus Christ, then you hang in there, and you trust that God's going to work in their life. But certainly, what Paul's never pursue a romance or, or plan for marriage outside of the spiritual commitment that you have. What, what a great danger this was for Israel and what a great danger it is for us in our modern-day culture. Well, verse 8, look at the damage that it did. It said, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishayatham, the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishayatham eight years. You see, you could say that God gave Israel just what they wanted. They didn't want to serve God, and so he allowed them to be in bondage to a pagan king. There's a sense in which Israel reaped exactly what it sowed. Oh, Lord, we don't want you. We'll pursue the Baals and the Ashtoreths that our ungodly romances have introduced into our families and into our lives. We'll serve these pagan gods. And God said, oh, you want to serve them for a while? We'll let them deliver you from your oppressors. And you know what? They found out pretty quick. There's no power in Baal to deliver you, right? Ashtoreth is of no help. And they turned to the living God eventually. You see, it was eight years of bondage before Israel cried out to the Lord. Eight years of bondage. Look, some of us, we read that and we go, how dumb can you be? Eight years of bondage. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but how many of us would say, I've been dumber than that? (laughs) Right? Isn't it remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it remarkable, the human capacity for the self-abuse, the human capacity for us to kiss the chains that bind us and to refuse the one who would deliver us? That's exactly where Israel was out. Eight years before they cried out to the Lord, but then finally they did it. Look at verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Isn't that wonderful? They finally cried out, and then God delivered them. Going on, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishathem, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathem. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. I think it's beautiful in verse 9 how it describes that the children of Israel eventually cried out to the Lord. After those eight years of bondage, when they eventually cried out to the Lord, God heard them. And it says in verse 9 that the Lord raised up a deliverer, this man Othniel. Now, by the way, Othniel was the son-in-law of the great hero Caleb, and his wife was also a woman of faith. So here it is, this great man, Othniel, gets raised up as a heroic deliverer, a judge for Israel. Now, 
I have a pretty cool set of books in my office called The Legends of the Jews. It's not Bible stuff, but it's cool stories that the rabbis would tell. And so when I'm studying through a passage of the Old Testament, I'll look up and see, well, does Ginsburg say anything in Legends of the Jews? And, you know, they, the rabbis had funny stories about Othniel. In this collection of, of rabbinical fables and traditions, they, they had a couple fanciful additions to the story of Othniel. Here's, here's one. Quote, among the judges, Othniel represents the class of scholars. His acumen was so great that he was able, by dint of dialectic reasoning, to restore the 1,700 traditions which Moses had taught the people and which had been forgotten in the time of mourning for Moses. Wow! Isn't that interesting? Othniel was so smart that he somehow was able to remember 1,700 traditions that everybody else had forgot that had come down from the mouth of Moses. The only problem is it's not true. It's nowhere in the Bible, but the rabbis used to say it. Here's the second one. Othniel, however, was held to so little answerable for the causes that had brought on the punishment of the people that God granted him eternal life, and he's one of the few who reached paradise alive. Isn't that wonderful? Othniel was so great that he just got like on that express elevator to heaven, right? Just right away, just right up to paradise alive, and he never had to die. Again, was it true? No, not at all. Just interesting stories that the rabbis say. And I, I, I don't know why it's in the nature of man to sort of embellish things and to come up with things that are more than what the text says. But that tendency is there. I, I'll tell you, if you just look at what the text says in and of itself at verse 10, it's exciting enough about Othniel. You don't have to make up stories about how smart he was or how he went straight up to heaven alive. Look at verse 10. It says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. To tell you the truth, we don't know very much about Othniel, but this is what we do know. The Holy Spirit empowered him for the job that God called him to do. And that's thrilling. You and I need this this evening, don't we? Don't we need the Holy Spirit of God to come upon us? Now, I don't think God's called many of us in this room to deliver a nation the way that he called Othniel to do. I wouldn't be shocked if there were people in this room that God has called to such a thing. But for most of us, we're we're fighting a battle for deliverance in another sphere, are we not? In our families, in our neighborhoods, among people we love. God's put us in some strategic place where there's somebody crying out for the light of God's deliverance and truth. And you are going to be God's woman or God's man to them in that situation. And you need to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord so that you would do that. God can use you in just such a situation. We don't have any line that there's anything amazing or, or remarkable at Othniel in and of himself. But what we do know is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You could say that Othniel lived the principle of Zechariah 4.6. You know that verse, don't you? Not by might, nor by power, but what? But by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, Othniel delivered Israel. All right, that's the first judge. Second judge? Ehud, verse 12. Uh, How many years of rest did they have after Othniel? Forty years. Pretty good, right? Way to go, Othniel. Good job. Next one up, Ehud, verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Isn't that just bitter? Because Israel was blessed and prosperous. Friends, it's just the same today. So often in our seasons of blessing and prosperity, our heart grows cold against the Lord and we drift off to the worship of idols. Isn't this you? Isn't this I? Listen, I I think about people here, right here in our midst, and you're blessed. God has delivered you from so many things and he's blessed you. He's prospered you. His grace is upon you. Listen, it's wonderful. Don't feel guilty about it at all. Relish, rejoice in the blessings that God has given you. But keep your heart beating hard after the Lord. Pray that great prayer from the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we need to do, right? Especially in seasons of blessing. There are so many people, they can handle the trials of adversity. What they can't handle is the trials of success. Well, this is Israel's problem, right? They had blessing and peace and prosperity for 40 years, but their hearts became hardened again. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. After God had brought deliverance through the hand of Othniel, they eventually drifted away from their dependence upon the Lord and their obedience towards him. Their victory did not automatically last forever. You know, I think of that. Don't you think there's a lot of victory represented in this room? Isn't it beautiful to think about that? There's a lot of sins conquered. There's a lot of the bondage of unforgiveness and bitterness released. There's a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, love that's been poured out to difficult people in different situations. There's a lot of, of, of stains that's been washed away by the glorious work of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of victory represented in this room. Isn't it great? All right, you know what? That's yesterday's news. All yesterday's victory doesn't guarantee it for you tomorrow. Can I tell you something? You've got to trust God all over again today, don't you? And say, okay, Lord, thank you for what you did in my life yesterday. I'm happy about it, but I've got to believe in you all over again today. I've got to put my trust in who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross all over again today. And today I do it. Victory doesn't automatically last forever. has to be maintained. And what happened, verse 14, the children of Israel served Eglon. Their their sin brought them into bondage, and they suffered 18, what was it, uh, 18 years of bondage. In the days of Othniel, it was eight years. In the days of Eglon, it was 18 stubborn years of bondage before they cried out to the Lord. Can I just tell you again, and If you don't mind, I'm going to preach to myself just a little bit right now. If you want to overhear, that's fine. But sin always brings bondage, does it not? Always. You you don't get liberated through sin. You you get put in greater bondage, greater, uh, 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 less and less freedom and liberty before the Lord. Now, the, the bondage of sin, it always comes deceptively, does it not? When the fish goes after the bait that's on the hook. The fish never sees the hook. All it sees is the bait, right? Satan snares us by making the bait attractive and hiding the hook, right? 
Well, listen, be a smart fish. Don't let them hide the hook. But God has a deliverer for Israel. Look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. What a merciful God we serve, right? I mean, Israel had sort of pushed God away for 18 years. But when they cried out to the Lord, God said, okay, I'll hear you now that you're crying out to me. Listen, wouldn't God have every right to say, you know what? 18 years, that's too long. Forget it. You guys are on your own forever now. But he doesn't do that. He's so rich in mercy. I'm so happy to say it doesn't matter how many times you've rejected the Lord before this. Tonight, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Tonight, if you'll seek Jesus and who he is and what he did on the cross to be a payment for your sins, he'll forgive your sins. It's beautiful to think that, how rich the mercy of God is. And so now he extends it out to the people of Israel and he raises up this man, Ehud. Ehud is a very special judge, very remarkable man, as we're going to see starting at verse 16. I don't know, maybe more parents should be naming their kids Ehud. I'll tell you what, that gets some attention, right? That'd make people turn and read their Bibles in Judges chapter 3. Well, let's look at the story of Ehud, right? Okay, we know from verse 15, Ehud's job was to bring the tribute, the tax money, the presents, the gift, the payoff, whatever you want to call it, to Eglon, the king of Moab. That's what he's doing. Verse 16. And we'll read for a while now. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Don't you love how straightforward the Bible is? <laughs> and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. And Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I love this line, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. (laughs) You know... I talk a lot about the Bible being a movie in my head. Sometimes you just turn the movie off. Going on. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sariah. Verse 17, he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. They bring the tribute, the taxation money. Verse 20, he says, hey, king, I have a message from God for you. Now, he completely told the truth, didn't he? 
There was a message from God that he had for Eglon. Here was the message. Those who oppress the people of God, those who who damage the apple of his eye, they're going to be judged for it. F.B. Meyer, a great devotional writer and commentator from the early part of the 20th century, he he put forth some thoughts from Judges chapter 3, verse 20, an Ehud statement from Eglon. Here was the statement that he worked on. I have a message from God for you. And he meditated on the messages of God. Number one, God's messages are often secret. Okay, it was a secret message, right? Number two, God's messages must be received with reverence. In other words, they went off into a private place and they received the message. Number three, God's messages often leap out from unexpected quarters. Well, that was certainly true of that little dagger, wasn't it? And then number four, God's messages are sharp as two-edged swords and they cause death. What kind of death would that be that God's message would cause in you or in I? F.B. Meyer goes on to explain. Let me read you a quote from him. God's word pierces as a two-edged sword to the dividing of the soul and spirit in the recesses of the being and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When the Eglon of self has received his death wound, the glad trumpet of freedom is blown on the hills. Is it not too much to say that there's some of us here and we're We are oppressed by the tyranny of self. Just as much as Israel was in bondage to Eglon, the king of Moab, we're in bondage to our own kind of Eglon, except our own Eglon is self. And it's fat and lazy and self-indulgent, or it's it's just concerned only about itself. God has a message for that self-life tonight, doesn't he? He'd come and bring that self-life and just stab it through with his word. Say, let it die. Let it perish. You know, God uses a lot of different messengers to speak to us, does he not? And the message he spoke to Eglon was the message of death. Again, if I could, let me read to you a, a passage from Spurgeon here commenting on this. He said, Ehud said, I have a message from God for thee. And it was a dagger which found its way to Eglon's heart and he fell dead. So shall death deliver his message to you. Set thy house in order for thou shalt die and not live. Oh, that you may hear other messengers of God before he sends you this last most powerful one from which you cannot turn away. Death is a messenger to us, is it not? We need to listen to it. You know, the the preacher, when he stands in front of people, he should stand as if he were Ehud delivering a message to say, I have a message from God for you. Oh, I don't use any fleshly human sword. I don't have daggers or guns or any such weapons upon me. But I have something that in the human heart is even more powerful. It's the word of God. It's that sharp two-edged sword. Spurgeon goes on to describe when he's talking about this idea of the of the the preacher confronting the audience. He talks about a preacher who was afraid to look at the faces of the people that he preached to. And so he just sort of looked off in the distance or a ventilation vent, you know, in the ceiling because he didn't want to take a look at the people he was preaching to. No, speak to the people and look at them face to face. You have a message of God for them. 
I feel that God's word has a message for each one of us, myself included. You see, Ehud reached in with his left hand because the blow would be unexpected coming from the left side. And he stabbed it in the man's gut. And as it says in verse 22, the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of the belly and his entrails came out. That's just gross. (laughs) And without going into greater detail, you can look it up on the notes online on my particular, on my website. I'm not going to go, just propriety's sake, I'm not going to go into greater depth. I'm just going to say this. It's even more gross in the original Hebrew than it is right here. Do you know, the simple idea that God wants to confront these areas of bondage and sin in our life is something that we, we need to reckon with ourselves. It's also humorous, strange. Verse 24, his servants, after Ehud had stabbed him dead and ran away. The servants stand outside and they say, well, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. You understand what that means? You see, without being coarse, you can see how true to life the Bible is. It describes normal, everyday functions, but in a dignified way. He was using the toilet. But the Bible just describes a very dignified way. Attending to his needs is is literally, in the ancient Hebrew, Covering his feet, and that's a euphemism for elimination that's used in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3 as well. Well, Ehud's going to lead the Israelites, verse 27. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with them from the mountains, and he led them down. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and they did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 27. And he led them. Ehud was a man of great cunning, a man of great courage. You know, he's one of these like special operations guys in the Bible, you know, sneaking into the guys, in private audience, left-handed dagger, all the rest of it. It's amazing to read. We get excited reading about that. But, but for all the cunning, all the courage that that took, he could not do the work by himself. He was a brave man, but he needed other brave and faithful men to rally around him. God raised up Ehud as a leader, but I'll tell you, a leader is nothing without followers, right? Do you know what a leader is without a follower? He's alone. He can't do much at all. And so they needed to do the work beyond that. You know, in the same way, God lifts up leaders in his church, but they can never do the work by themselves. It has to be a work of a team and the body working together. But I love, I love how uh, Ehud inspired them. Look at verse 28, where he says, follow me for the Lord is delivered. Ehud asked the Israelites to follow him because he was their leader. Yet he also encouraged them to look with faith to the Lord. He said, verse 28, for the Lord has delivered your enemies to the land. And that's always a good balance for any Christian leader to keep in mind. You need to be like, hey, I'm following the Lord. You follow me, but let's keep our eyes on the Lord, not upon myself. Really, if you're going to be a Christian leader, you can't say, well, don't follow me. Just follow Jesus. 
You need to be able to tell people, hey, I'm following the Lord to the best I can. Follow, but keep your eyes on the Lord as we all follow him together. A leader can't expect his followers to go where he or she has not gone before. So he could say, follow me and look at the glorious result. Verse 30, and the land had rest for 80 years. Ehud's cunning, his bravery, his leadership, and Israel's faithful following of that leader, that brought Israel its longest period of deliverance and freedom during the whole 400-year period of the judges. This was the best it ever got, 80 years. That's how long the land had rest. Friends, that's two generations. There were people who lived and died under that whole period, never knowing oppression from a foreign enemy because Ehud had done such a glorious job, not only as an individual, but then also as a leader of others. Friends, that's really what it comes down to, God's work in an individual life or an individual community. Yes, it takes leaders, but it takes leaders who will also be ones who will draw other people into following them for the work of the Lord. It's a remarkable, remarkable instance how one man or one woman can make a difference, and Ehud was that man. All right, so I said tonight would be three judges. First judge, Othniel. Second judge, Ehud. Third judge, he's a judge in one verse, verse 31. Look at the one-verse judge. In some ways, I like him the best. (laughs) After him, that's after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. All right, now, I turned the movie off in my head when it came to Ehud and the assassination of Eglon. I turn it back on when it comes to Shamgar. Wouldn't you love to see that dude bust out some kung fu with an ox goat on 600 Philistines? That must have been amazing. Only one verse describes the work of Shamgar. It's possible that so little was said about him because he was so well known and everybody knew about Shamgar and all he had to do was mention him. But notice that. How did he deliver the people of Israel? What was his tool in fighting? An ox goad. Do you know what an ox goad is? Okay, it's a long, sharp stick. One part of it would be pointy. That's the part of it that you would poke the ox with to get him going, right? Because the ox wasn't so thrilled at pulling the plow. You know, I mean, he'd rather be off eating hay somewhere. So to get him to do it, you poke him with the sharp stick. Then on the other side of it was sort of a flat, almost chisel kind of end that you would use to scrape the plow and the buildup that would come upon the plow. That's what an ox goad was, a big, long stick. He killed 600 Philistines in the greatest display of martial arts business that you'll ever see, wielding that thing like some awesome bow staff or something, just whooping on them like crazy. But here's the point. Why did he use an ox goad? And I'll tell you why. I mean, I think there's no other way. It's undoubtedly what he had in his hand. I mean, the need came up, right? A a, a whole army of Philistines is coming over the hill. They're starting to come in on a line towards them. What does he have? He didn't have a machine gun or a tank with him. But he has an ox goat. He has something in his hand. Listen, there's nothing spectacular about an ox goat. But God can use and wants to use 
What is in our hands? I imagine Shamgar was just out a laborer doing his job, right? He's out plowing a field. But when the danger came, he could use what was in his hand. And prompted by God, he rescued the people of God from their enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we so often doubt what God can do just by what he puts in our hand. You, you think that, well, God needs to make you something very special or something very different than what you are right now for him to really use you. No, I don't have any doubt. He's put things in your hand. Didn't he put a staff in the hand of Moses? And he used that staff to lead Israel. Didn't he put a sling in the hand of David? And he used that sling to deliver Israel and to kill a giant. And what did he have in the hand of Shamgar? What he had was simply an ox go. I don't know what it is that God's put in your hand. What place of influence? What connections? What friends? What network? What special abilities? What has God's given you? But you might just ask him now. Ask him. Think about it. God, what have you given me and how, how can I use it for your glory? How can I use it to bring a measure of deliverance to your people and honor and glory to you? That's what God wants to do with it. And friends, if I could say, for us to be able to do that. It takes us to be able to confront the things that might bring bondage into our own lives, does it not? Shamgar could not fight that battle if he was shackled with chains. It's a man or a woman who's free in Jesus Christ, who can use what God has put into their hands. Let's do that first. Let's seek the Lord for the freedom from the tyranny of sin and self, and then say, Lord, how do you want to use me and whatever it is you put in my hand.